Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So welcome to another edition of Face to Face, uh, another uh, warm and not so sunny day here in Phnom Penh. I've been able to pick up a, uh, some pretty interesting interviews with some pretty amazing and incredible people and I'm joined by another one today, uh, Terry Seng, who uh, will be telling us uh, quite a bit about her story, I'm sure. But uh, just so you know, we're sitting at the FCC, the Foreign Correspondents Club, uh, incredible amount of history here. Uh, I'll let you guys look that up. Um, so, <laughs> so thanks for uh, thanks for joining me today and for uh, you know being gracious enough to do the uh, to do the interview. My pleasure, David. So I've read and I know you a little bit. I've heard you speak. I've read your book. Um, you've been called a human rights activist, and I'm, you're a lawyer. You're a writer. Uh, you are doing a little bit of everything. It seems to me. But but I'm really interested in why why I would want to listen to you, or why should I listen to you. Uh, as a human rights activist? Well, because you're interested in Cambodia. <laughs> because right. I love Cambodia and I'm passionate about Cambodia. Um, I don't know why anyone should listen to me, really. <laughs> um, but I would like to think that uh, what I am doing is really to magnify the voice of those in the society who are voiceless. And to tell their stories through my voice to the outer, to the larger world. And in doing so, to raise their plight and awareness, and in the process, maybe create understanding and assistance, um, and also put pressure on our government to shape up a little bit. So I guess that's not really answering your question, no. David, of why people should listen to me. I mean, I really don't know why. And, and folks, she's, sure also, she's also a politician. She's avoiding my question. Yeah. So t- tell me a little bit about, uh, what do you mean by voiceless? There are a lot of Cambodians, as there are uh, many 
individuals in oppressive um, societies who do not have a voice, who cannot find their voice because the conditions, um, either due to poverty or outright laws prohibiting them to speak out about their needs to express and exercise their basic rights to have an opinion. And so for me, because we are living in Cambodia where it is an oppressive society, where the regime is authoritarian, um, it's really important that individuals like myself create that space, fight for that space, so that others can also share their opinion publicly and exercise what we call our basic innate human rights or democratic rights. And the, and the fundamental ones um, that we normally think of are the right to have an opinion, the right to belief, the right, the, and the, the freedom from fear and, and, and want. So what I'm doing is really not anything unique or really anything special because it's really only natural that I'm expressing and doing what is an extension of who I am, who have lived in a free society in the United States for many years and now is back home in my birth country. Um, and in the process, if I can help others to, to have, find their voice, the, the, the better. So there's so many questions for me that comes out of that, and, and hopefully we, I will, I'm writing a few things down here as we go, but um, do you think, think, I mean, I've been coming to Cambodia for about 10 years, and I, obviously I, I stay connected through the BBC and through the Globe and Mail and the New York Times and so on, but I'm not here, I'm not living it, I'm not day to day. Is it, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? I mean, our country uh, took Cambodia off the priority list from, a, from an ODA perspective a couple of years ago, which infuriated me, but uh, perhaps they know some things that I don't. Is, is, it, uh, is, it a, is it a freer place to live t today than it was 10 years ago? Is it a more, I mean, I look around, I'm, I'm looking at a construction site with the balcony here and cranes across the river, and what's, uh, what's going on kind of internally right now? There are a lot of superficial developments going on right now that makes it seem like the city, the capital city where we are now, is prospering, is developing in the right direction. But it doesn't take much to peel mm. off that superficial layer and, and to confront uh, and to be confronted with the, the invidious, um, entrenched problems of abuses at, from the top level. And so we're really living in a sea of abuses. What is confronting individuals like myself who are working um, and, and advocating for basic rights, what we call, term human rights, um, are not just one issue. Uh, it's not just land grabbing. It's not just deforestation. Those are the big ones it's we not hear about. just trafficking, but they all come at us, inundate us and society all at once. So when we normally think of a problem, we think of a problem one at a time. But here we don't have that luxury because the deluge is all at once coming mm. at us. And we don't have enough individuals like myself to help raise awareness, to help to, to confront those issues. Um, and so this is why the importance and the significance for the individuals in society, for everyone, 
who is concerned to really demand their, own, their, their, their basic right, mm -hmm. not just the professional activists like myself because it's my work or because it's my hobby or because I have a special interest in this. Um, the, the best scenario is when we don't have to have individuals like my, and myself advocating because everyone is already advocating for yeah, his or her rights. We're sort of all working on it together. That's right, that's right. And what's it going to take to get Cambodia to that place? I mean, are we a long way away from that? Yeah, we're very much a long way. Cambodia, um, and from every indicator in terms of numerical indicators on the developmental list, um, is at the bottom of, of the list. In terms of human uh, human development and indicators, um, economic development indicators, we're we're a, a, an extremely poor country, and not only are we poor uh, in terms of uh, monetary wise, we're we're broken. We're yeah. broken by civil war and and, and 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 then genocide and then occupation and now trafficking and and the mess of modern day uh, living. But still, with the with the mentality and and in the conditions of one thousand years back, so we're we're very much a long way in catching up with the developed countries. Or we're not living in twenty thirteen, mm. really. We're we're living about a thousand years back in terms of conditions, and in terms of access of education for the people. So the, the, the solutions are really very, very basic and very simple. The implementation, of course, and trying to get the leaders to, to set the infrastructure for the implementation is what is most difficult. What are the, 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 the solutions? And they're known to everyone. Quality education for the population. We need to empower our people. Ultimately, that is the most fundamental first step the most fundamental first principle. We can't have, um, we can't develop a society when the education is not there, when, when human capital is not there. And right now, for sure, we do not have human capital. We do not have quality education. And, and then, of course, we have the other problems of corruption. But those are symptoms of a population that is not educated because corruption occurs when people are not empowered enough collectively um, and, 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 and built a critical mass to, to speak against and speak out against corruption. So I guess simply the, uh, we're, we're very much in a deep hole mm -hmm. and that we need uh, to dig ourselves out from. Um, and ultimately, we have to do it. We, 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 we do need assistance from the outside world, from the international community, and we are getting that. Unfortunately, they're, they're misappropriated and, and they're, um, they're uh, diverted into private hands. You know, um, Cambodia, for example, uh, has a national budget of $2 billion annually. One billion comes from the international community. We're a beggar nation. Right, it right. creates a, a mentality that is not healthy, and we've yeah, been yeah. we've been at this stage for, at this stage for many many years now, and we need to move out of that. And there's no there's there there are no movement to yeah, really get yeah. us out of that dependency mentality. So do you think so? So that's really interesting, and uh, we're not going to have enough anywhere near enough time for this interview. I can tell already, um, but. So Canada, for instance, uh, just recently uh, cut, a couple of years ago, cut quite a few prior, what they called priority countries from a, a, a under the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade, CEDA. And Cambodia was one of them, Mongolia, Malawi, and others. And they moved most of our overseas development assistance 
to uh, the Latin Americas. So, of course, the critics are saying, well, that was a business decision. We did that because of the mining companies and the oil companies and so on. And I tend to agree. Um, but would you say that, you know, from Canada's perspective, it was a wise move to cut aid to, to oh, Cambodia? It was, like it's, it's, it was, I mean, if it's a 50, 50 if, if, if a billion of your dollars is coming from, you know, foreign assistance, that's... It's troubling on a lot of levels, and I'm not necessarily saying one way or the other, but it, uh, it infuriated me when I heard we cut Cambodia. I think it's misguided policy on Canada's part, really, to pull out from Cambodia, to close its embassy, to, um, to cut a lot of the diplomatic ties and, um, to Cambodia. I, I don't know um, what we were thinking. And, uh, because I think there is something to be said about engagements. Cambodia is not Burma, and Cambodia is not South Africa during the apartheid years where it should be isolated. Um, of course, the assistance is a catch-22. Uh, uh, it's it's a catch-22, right? Because, I mean, we need it, the people need it, because our government is not providing the basic services. The basic services are being provided from the international community, through the NGO, through the international, and through the human rights community. Um, in terms of basic education, in terms of health, which really should be in in uh, should be the responsibility uh, of the government, but then it creates a dependency right. mentality. Yeah. So it yeah. is catch twenty two. Um, but I wish Canada had not uh, left and and is still here well, because well, we, we love you guys. I'm going to put it on record now uh, for all my you know twenty two listeners. Um, uh, that, that I actually am considering how to take this to the next level to say, you know what, I'm one of the few who has a bit of an understanding of the country and I'd like to put it back on the table. And, and I don't know what that means yet. I don't know if it means going to my local MP and starting there or if it actually means heading to Ottawa and banging on a few doors. But I'm, I'm committed to doing something. But it's also misguided from the Canadian perspective in this regard. Asia is, is uh, this is the century, and uh, this is the decade of Asia, and particularly Southeast Asia. It was yeah. in the 90s, yeah. and now it's That's, also, the, it still is yeah, going I, on, I, I and things it. are happening here well, and when I in look terms at of the economic de development. When I look at the economic development that yeah. seems to be occurring, however corrupt or however problematic, right. there are still huge opportunities here. Also, so, democratization is also yes, happening yeah, here. Yeah, so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, you want, you want, a, you want a good example of, of how to do development? Mm. I think Cambodia could be could be a place to, to well to start <laughs> <laughs> and also our size is manageable That's that true. for a country like yeah. Canada to have yeah. an impact here you yeah. would have an impact yeah. here because I, we're, we're, we're a small yeah. country yeah. where um, any assistance any presence would and can, can, does make a difference I, uh, I read recently um, that your gross, uh, your GDP is about $15.8 billion a year. Canada's is $1.8 trillion a year. Your GNI, gross national income, is about $820 a year, and ours is around, I think, uh, $36,000 a year, which is huge. I mean, still, some would, or, or maybe it's a little lower than that, which is, you know, from a Canadian perspective, not that much higher than the poverty line, but when you look at the gap, it's just so huge. I read an article just last week in Southeast Asia magazine, and Garment workers are now going to make eighty dollars an hour, uh, hour, eighty dollars a month. That's the American. Oh, that's the Canadian dream, right? For a Cambodian to be making eighty dollars an hour. Eighty dollars an hour, which is what nine hundred and sixty dollars a year. I don't know if I failed mathematics. Uh, it, it's not. It's not in the. Um, it, it can't even. It can't be imagined by yeah. a Cambodian. It's so out there that it can't be imagined. So what do you do with people who say things like, uh, oh, come on, you know, it's all relative, you know, $80 a month. I mean, that's, you know, that's minimum wage, right? I mean, 
those folks can survive or or oh for the you know it's 40 years ago the Khmer Rouge the occupation I mean it's done it's the history you know you, you refer to Cambodians as being broken and I think that's I think that's the perfect word for it. Maybe you can unpack that a little bit more. Because I get very frustrated with people. And same with our First Nations communities in Canada. Oh, come on. We've dumped so much money into you guys. And you just got to smarten up. And, you know, it's, you know, you, 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 you all drink too much. You all use drugs. You know, that's what, you know, you hear these massive sweeping generalizations about our First Nations communities that are just plain wrong. And yet there's a form of racism there, I think. And it's, uh, it's a bit troubling. Well, $80 a month um, is not a living wage. No one can live on $80 a month anywhere in this world um, in 2013. Well, let's That's put, good. Uh, let's, uh, I mean, the arithmetic doesn't work. For example, here in Cambodia, the petroleum costs more than it does in, t in Canada. Oh, thank you. So how does that work when a, a, a garment worker is making $80 a, um, a month she has to pay rent. So rent is what, ten to fifteen dollars a month in a room. With, in a room. In, yeah. in one room with ten other people. Yeah. Yeah. And transportation because gasoline and petroleum cost a lot and takes up another ten, fifteen dollars from yes. the eighty. Yes. Yes. And then of course they're sending and the and food costs as much as anywhere, really, uh, food is expensive here in Phnom Penh and Cambodia. You know, we import our veg vegetables and uh, many things. Um, a, um, a can of um, Coca-Cola is still 50 cents to a dollar. Right. Um, right. It doesn't change because we're in Cambodia. So, um, and then uh, the arithmetic doesn't work. So it's not a living wage, um, even though we're in Cambodia. And um, relatively speaking, of course, it's a little bit cheaper to live here, but not in 2013, where globalization infiltrates um, and, uh, and, and has raised the, the, uh, the prices of commodity um, anywhere in the world and, um, and here in Cambodia. Uh, a young woman who's working at the hotel that I just discovered on my uh, trip here, a wonderful place, the King Grand Suites too, for those of you who are interested <laughs> in a great little area. Uh, last night was helping me log on and, and print off my ticket for my flight today and she was watching intently over my shoulder almost to the point of it being a little annoying <laughs> and and at, 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 I checked in online and I printed off my ticket and she said oh I've never I've never seen that before so we started chatting how long you've been working here oh only a week are you happy with your job and just there was such a pride there that um, I, I don't want to be nostalgic or oh gee because I'm away from home I, I see everything in a, in a more positive light but there was a pride there and she, she's making a hundred dollars a month and that's a higher-end job than say a garment factory worker and it's just for me it's always such a such a lesson in perspective and uh, uh, such a uh, important reminder and a compelling reminder of why you know why we do things you know the work that we do um, well, so the other question, what do you do with people who say, uh, come on, it's in the past, it's time to move on, Cambodia needs to, uh, you know, roll up her sleeves? Yeah, well, we're, we're trying to move on, we're, we're trying to um, I don't say reconcile that, the past and the present in order so we can move to the, the future, but it, it does take time. But time isn't the only factor, time is neutral, it, is. it takes... It takes ideas. It takes individuals and groups of individuals to to push for certain ideas and principles and foundational values in order to create a society where it is just, where people can prosper, where people can flourish. People can't flourish in ugly environments. 
um, people can't flourish when there are ugly abuses um, which run amok here, and they do run amok here. And so, yes, we, we are. It's, it's not that we don't know that we, mm -hmm. we need to mm -hmm. move away from mm -hmm. the past. We want to move away from the past. Um, and, and, but we do need help. We're, we're broken, not only physically broken, we're broken, our spirit is also broken. And you know how long it takes to heal a broken spirit. Um, and now we're not only talking about one individual, we're talking about a whole population. So my energy is really to simultaneously understand the past, um, but not really blame the past. Okay. Um, and so I do hear uh, what uh, individuals who are uh, you know, saying that it's time to move away from the past. So there's something, there, there is a grain of truth in that we do need to move um, away from the past, but we, we shouldn't forget it and we shouldn't not, uh, we, we can't forget it. And we need to draw lessons from that. Um, so how do we do that? That is the, that, I think that's the dilemma of the Cambodian situation right now. How do we reconcile the past for the present in order to move toward the future? I think um, from after reading your story, The Daughter, Daughter of the Killing Fields, which is a book I definitely recommend, and, and from hearing a little bit about what you're working on now and, and the reconciliation projects and so on, I mean, you're somebody who can talk about, I think, uh, being broken and, and reconciling with the past and forgiveness and all of these things. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and, and uh, you know, I mean, if anyone wants to, they can certainly find it out online and, and hopefully read your book. But tell me a little bit more about why you're, you're an expert in reconciliation. Well, I'm not an expert in reconciliation. I'm still learning along the way, but I've, I've had a lot of time to focus on it. And I was very fortunate to do so, not only as, um, as part of my personal journey, but um, it can do that in my professional life where I've engaged the Cambodian population on the issues of justice and reconciliation by uh, conducting public forums for dialogue, for, for discussions of our past. And is this all to do with uh, Khmer Rouge victims and former Khmer Rouge leaders and soldiers and so on? Is that the kind of... Yeah, it, it, um, the, 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 air, the, the period that we're focusing on or the, the conversation really focused on the Khmer Rouge period of the past of 71, or 75 to 79. Um, but of course, our past is very much present with us. Mm -hmm. The trauma, the history have not left us. Um, the ghosts and the demons of the past are still very much within us. And we need to purge those demons out. And the only way to do that is really to confront the past head on and through dialogue in, in a safe environment. And so that, that was really the, the goal and, and the, the effort that we tried to do in, in these um, forums that we conducted. So I'm very much a product of my history. As you uh, alluded to, I was born here in Cambodia in 1971. The Khmer Rouge communists took over the country in 1975. And for the next four years, um, I became a prisoner of the Khmer Rouge. But not only just, and not only me, the whole country became a, a one massive labor camp with many, 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 many prisons and, and labor camps within this this country where the country was completely closed to the international community and genocide occurred, uh, mass crimes occurred for four years unrestrained until um, our, our, our neighbor invaded and put an end to this genocide. So when the genocide ended, which I lived through, um, I lost both my parents and uh, an, an aunt and her newlywed uh, husband, my uncle. 
and almost two million of my countrymen. Um, but I was very fortunate to have a grandmother and my mom's siblings, sisters, who had the vision of providing a future for us. And they saw the future in the West. So we applied for France, for the United States. We got, um, we got to um, be refugees in the United States. And for me, that was a time of refuge and a time of healing because I was physically given the space apart from the genocide to heal in a community that was very loving, in a community that was Christian, in a community that, was, um, that served as a cocoon period for me, and that was Michigan. Um, but then, home was always beckoning me back, mm -hmm. and I had the first opportunity to return home to Cambodia in 1995 after I finished university um, in Washington, D.C., um, majoring in international politics. Because why politics and why international politics? Because I really wanted to make sense of my past, and I thought if I could understand international affairs better and politics better, or why it, why the genocide occurred at that and political international level um, that maybe I can, I, um, it will subside the angst and the turmoil from within. Um, so, and I, I came back as a volunteer for a year and a half um, knowing that um, I, would, I would return to live. Right. But, uh, but then it wasn't the time because I wanted to pursue further education. I went back to the United States for law school um, but, uh, and got my law degree. But during the summer months, I would always return to Cambodia. Oh, okay. So since yep. 1995, I've been back to Cambodia. I've never left. Um, but I didn't move to Cambodia permanently until 2004, the beginning of 2004. So home again is here. Um, I hold two passports. I'm both an American and a Cambodian. It used to be that I'm, I'm, I was an American Cambodian. Uh, I, I was a Cambodian American. Now I'm an American Cambodian. Oh, okay. The American being the adjective of who I right, am now right, as a Cambodian right. again. And um, I'm very fortunate to be given work and to be working in a field uh, that I love. It's frustrating and it's challenging um, and in a place where I love. And how that's you, here in Cambodia. How do you, having gone through all of that, I mean, I'd love to hear more about how you define reconciliation, but can we talk about justice for a minute or mm. two? You know, you're a lawyer, international law, politics, uh, incredibly well read and researched. How, how do you talk about justice in a, in a global in a global sense, I guess? Or, or do you not? Do you talk about it in a relational sense and then build, uh, build from there? Um, we, we discuss a lot about justice, and my, I, I find myself often now trying to shift people from thinking of justice solely as legal justice toward other means of justice. Um, and I didn't intend to do that at the beginning, but now I feel like a lot of my time is trying to do that, that because I have denounced the Khmer Rouge Tribunal as a political sham. Um, before I was aware that there are many, many types of justice, and or that there's, there's justice, but there are many components to justice. And one critical component um, is the legal justice, mm. is the physical court, mm -hmm. that um, ju the judiciary. And I continue to believe and will always believe the, in the importance of a court of law. But unfortunately, everyone gives too much preeminence 
to the court of law as the only form of justice, right. as the component right. of justice. And in the Cambodian context, when that form has been despoiled, has been manipulated, has been, is a sham, then the issue becomes, well, do we no longer have justice or do, are we now um, completely um, cut off from, from searching so it, it for, for other forms of justices? And I'm saying, no, you know, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's unfortunate that the, and that the, the court, and which is the Clarence Tribunal, has been that and that has been a squandered missed opportunity to to bring about justice. That vehicle and that vehicle is now broken and and completely um, uh, useless. But that doesn't mean that our pursuit of justice has ended. Right. It just we just need to be more creative to, right. to look for justice in the form of forgiveness, in the form of dialogue, in the form of relational justice. It raises kind of questions about the whole, whole the efficacy of, of, of legal justice, really, in, in a way, doesn't it? I mean, it makes one wonder if, if any kind of legal justice really brings reconciliation. Maybe well, it's a it's stepping important. stone. But... Yeah. So it's, it's legal justice, uh, the court of law, the physical courthouse, or and due process, everything that we associate with legal justice in terms of, of um, court, the courts of law, the physical infrastructure, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Right. And now, in the Cambodian context, it's not only insufficient, it is deficient. So generally, the court is necessary, but not sufficient, and here, it's still necessary but unfortunately that is no longer an issue for us because it's no longer a court it's a sham because it's no longer de it's, it's deficient because it's deficient so it becomes then does our journey for justice end does our pursuit of justice end and i'm i'm, I'm trying to communicate to the largest um, uh, population that no it doesn't unfortunately we've lost one important component of right, justice right. but <laughs> That doesn't mean that we, we can't pursue justice, and maybe um, it's, it's, the, it's the catalyst that, um, and that is the blessing in disguise for us to shift toward other forms of justices, which for me are as important, if not more important, which is the relational justice, the right. conversations, the dialogue, right. yeah. the forgiveness issues. Is this the kind of, is this, is this the kind of thing that happens more um, at, a at a community level, would you say? Uh, uh, no, village it, level, or is this just between people like you and I over a coffee. Oh, it can it can be done more publicly and more systematically, and not just a private, um, a small group individual uh, initiative. Dialogue, and uh, for example, our public forums that we conducted uh, for uh, for a period of three years um, was considered. They were considered um, the informal truth and reconciliation mm. commission. Mm. Um, the truth commission the way that was done in South Africa, where it was an official form, it was, it was officially um, established, couldn't, would not have worked here. Because a, a truth commission requires, oh, there's no incentive here in Cambodia for anyone to come forward to tell the truth 35 years later after the crimes. In South Africa, there was that great incentive the law would catch up with them. Right. And once the law catches up with them, then they would feel the punishment of the state if right. they don't, on their own initiative, come out with the truth first before the law catches up with them. We don't have that incentive here in Cambodia mm. to, have, um, to, have a, a, to have an ineffective commission. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that the idea of conversations or of truth telling um, doesn't work here. It's, it's, a, it's a good idea. It's a great idea. It's a needed idea. We just need to find other forms to do it, does, even if it's not official. Does Khmer culture allow for, you know, I, I grew up in a home or in a, in a community where, you know, you don't talk about things like sex, religion, and politics, and I'd probably add death to that. I often mention that I've added another to the list. Is, is Khmer culture the same in the sense that, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the surface, we'll talk about the weather and the sporting events and what we did at a birthday and a wedding, but we're not going to talk about the deeper issues that really matter. Is that kind of the way things go here? Or do you get a bunch of women in a room or a bunch of men in a room smoking cigarettes and playing cards and things start to come up? Um, we, I think conversations need to be triggered as mm. reading needs to be triggered, as the love of education needs to be triggered. It's not nature, it's nurtured. They can be nurtured. Conversations can be nurtured. Um, so that's my general statement. In particular, I believe that every victim, and I'm not using the word victim, I'm, I'm using the word victim here in, a, in an objective uh, manner, meaning that someone who has suffered loss. Fair. Um, That's good. It's good distinction. Uh, not, not in yeah, emotional, not in a you know, pejorative yeah. psychological way. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm oh, victimized. Yeah. No, by yeah. any means. You know, and, and this is why I continue to ret retain this term for myself that hmm. I'm a victim because right. it has legal consequences where people want to graduate, in quotation marks, to being a survivor. No. Right. A survivor doesn't have, doesn't have legal rights. A victim does. And so this is why there is, I think there is importance to retain that, and I'm, I'm both, I mean, and I use it, and, I'm, and, I, and it's within my choice to use the term, and, and which term um, at the time that I choose for, for, for the, the benefits of, of, of the conversation. But anyway, back to, uh, to, to the idea that I really believe that every victim, everyone who has suffered loss, everyone who has gone through trauma, who has, in particular, lived through a genocide. It doesn't matter if he or she is Cambodian, or German, or Jew, or um, Rwandan, it doesn't matter. Every person, underlying person, human being, wants his or her suffering acknowledged. Right. And because of that, he or she will want to talk about it. The issue is not whether he or she wants to talk about it. The issue is, is it safe to talk about it? Uh, and yes, here in Cambodia, yes. we've never had that safe space because everyone is always looking over their shoulders and they're not given the vocabulary. Right. For example, trauma is a new, it's not a new concept, but it's not talked about because people have been suffering internally or quietly and they haven't been given the vocabulary to express what it is that they're feeling. Right. But when they hear someone else talking about it, and then all of a sudden there's this connection and this resonance that's really important in right. the journey of healing and reconciliation. I, um, I interviewed Mr. Bu Eng mm. this morning at S21. And uh, while we were talking, uh, a man came over and stood beside us. And immediately his facial expression changed. And his tone even seemed to change. And I don't know Khmer expressions that well, and I know some of them, but I think I know human body language. Yeah. He was immediately not okay with this guy who was standing there, mm. listening in. And then he said something to him, and then the guy walked away. Mm. Two questions later, he talked about, he, he, he said, and I, hopefully this came out as a result of some of the questioning, but he basically said to me through the translator that maybe next time I speak to you, I'll tell you the real story. 
Mm. There's too many, I forget what the phrase was he used, but there's too many ears. Yeah. Is, is that what you mean? Like, is there still a deep, is there still a deep sense of mistrust in the culture? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, and, 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 and how does that connect back to your original comments about human rights, about being able to say what's on your mind, about mm. being able to create these ideas? I mean, if you're living in a constant state of fear, you're still kind of in a, a prison of a sort, yeah. you know? Fear is prison, and we are living in prison. We are, we are very much living in the prison of our minds and um, of the fears of the past, which have not been broken. <laughs> Hopefully they'll be okay. They're making, they're rushing to, to meet their lunch date. It's not for any other emergency, I can tell you that. <laughs> they're just cutting in line in the heavy traffic. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm looking up here at a construction site right now, and there's a guy standing on a scaffold that would just, if there was a Ministry of Labor from Ontario here, he'd be writing him a ticket right now. For all the safety regulations he would be breaking. We don't have tort laws here because... All at the same time. So or personal injury. Done, That's right. Compensation yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, fear is a prison, and we continue to live with fear. It has not been broken. The the stranglehold of fear, which existed prior to the Khmer Rouge, ah, okay. and the Khmer Rouge strangled it and and bottled it into and exploited and, and exploited it, in, it in, every way. Uh, in yeah. every way, has not been broken. Not only has it not been broken, it has been compounded mm. over the years. Yep. Because fear is an internal issue that builds up unless there is a very, very direct intervention over years to break that. And we've not had any intervention for sure, not over a period of years. What about a generational break? Is that occurring? Like, do you see the, a younger generation saying, I don't live with that same culture of mistrust or same culture of fear? But they live in the, they can't, they, they haven't escaped this they culture. Escape. I have escaped it to the United States. They, there, there needs to be a physical escape mm, to cut like action, or yeah. to, to access a different way of thinking. Right, right. They can't, just because they are of a new culture, oh, of a new generation, doesn't mean that they're not absorbing the fear in the household and in society sure, when sure, fear sure. is tangible Well, here. and how do you really know anyway, right? When you're talking about an, an argument based on nurture, how do you know the impact over time, this incremental impact? of this fear-based culture and, and what it's actually doing to you emotionally and spiritually and from a yeah, psychological sure. perspective. And it's, it's, it's in, 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 incrementally compounded because, like I said, it's the natural flow, it's the compoundment of it. It requires a, a shifting and a direct intervention to shift from fear to, to less fear. And we've not had that shift. So over the last three decades, the fears have been compounded and the politicians have exploited over and since the genocide ha, ha, um, have is it, exploded is it, that is it fear. fear of being thrown in jail? Is that kind of what it is? Is um, it the fear of the Khmer Rouge coming back? Is it the fear of war? Or? I, uh, I, I think it's more intangible than um, the physical confinement. Right. Um, of course, there is the fear of physical confinement, but it's, I think it's more intangible than that. It's all of that plus... Um, but I think the, the physical fears are really more, are more symptoms of the intangible fear that is really part of how we breathe. It's, it's as, as innate and as natural as breathing because fear is really tangible here. And you know that we cannot build, fear is the opposite of trust. And, and distrust and fear are the opposite of trust. And we can't build a society without mm -hmm. civic trust, without trust in institution. So there's no civic trust there. 
there's um, and fear uh, and fear breaks family bonds, which it did in the past, and it continues to break family bonds here. When kids are forced to tell on their parents yes, and yes. have le- which le- have led to their deaths, what does that say? What yeah, does that yeah, do yeah, to yeah, that individual sure. who is no longer uh, to and to that young boy in the Khmer Rouge years who are now a father? Yeah, yeah. So it's it takes a lot of energy which has not even been expanded uh, expended in in in. And trying to stop it. You mentioned that uh, fear was sort of previous to the Khmer Rouge. Was that uh, did things start to crumble uh, when Lan Nol and uh, well, I guess attempted the coup. I mean, there was a coup against the king, or was it? Is it deeper than that? Does it go back to the French occupation back in the in the early 1900s? What? It's it's deeper than that. I mean, we've we've always been a superstitious people. We're yep. Very very superstitious. Um, you know the the fears of of the natural elements of the jungles of the animals of um, and, and so so people revert and um, uh, to the spirit world and then of course the French occupation the Japanese occupation and violence and then back to the French and then the the fight for independence and then the years of civil war uh, which preceded um, the the genocide and then since and since then also a lot of other um, uh, a lot of other mass atrocities, maybe not to the uh, well, not to the same level of, of the Khmer Rouge, but still mass atrocities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we've always lived with fear. It's just that the Khmer Rouge compounded um, in our psyche to a degree that um, that is immeasurable. Well, in Mr. Ng's book, Mr. Ng's book, he talks about how he, you know, he was kind of an idealist with respect to the Khmer Rouge and how wow, this looked great, and we're going to give the country back to the king and isn't this wonderful? And then slowly, within I think at around '76, he started talking about how, in their meetings that they would have weekly, monthly meetings, whatever they had, the the uh, the, the, the political leaders, the Khmer Rouge, and so on, they would start telling on each other. They would they would they would kind of be forced to criticize each other. And he and he really didn't see the connection to the bigger project. Mm-hmm. I guess if I can sort of paraphrase and interpret him. Yeah. Um, but you know, what what's the value behind this this self criticism? Or, or not self-criticism even, which in some ways would be more um, probably uh, eye-opening. But no, no, I'm going to criticize you uh, for the things that you've been doing because I'm ultimately suspicious of you. So I don't begin with trust, I begin with suspicion. Yeah. So it's, it's part of the insanity of, um, of the Khmer Rouge, but I don't think the Khmer Rouge um, were unique in using this mm. uh, tactic of telling on others, of self-criticisms. Um, I think it's um, uh, it's symptomatic or it's a, a tool used by, by mass killers of the past as well, even previous to the Khmer Rouge regime. So it's, it's part of the, the shredding of, of, of human sentiments within families, mm-hmm. within the society, mm-hmm. to, to tell on others, because once you tell on others, you can't have a trusting relationship. Mm-hmm. It's too mm-hmm. really to break trust, and they did it. They, they were very successful in doing that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's, we're still dealing with, with the issue of trust. It's, it's a very, very serious issue, and, and trust, of course, is the, um, the opposite of fear. And so the whole trust thing, do you think, the, uh, a couple more questions for you, but do you think the, whole, do you think the ECCC, the trials, the tribunal, are actually doing more to erode trust in the long run? So are they actually creating more problems, doing more harm than good? At this moment, it is doing more harm than good. I really believe that. Uh, with a passion, I believe that. 
um, nothing is neutral. And in particular, when we already know this regime and what the, the regime wants to do with this Kairos Tribunal, uh, to recap, this, the current leadership in government will form a Khmer Rouge. They never wanted the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. When they were forced, when their hands were forced by the international community to have it, then they started dictating conditions that it could, should be in Cambodia, that they should have the majority at every level of the trial structure, from the president of the administration to the president of each trial chamber to the majority Cambodians because they knew that they can control the Cambodian people and, and, um, and less so the, the foreign uh, UN mm -hmm. officials. And um, so, so then they realized as well that, wow, this Khmerus Tribunal could really work to their benefit as long as they can control certain key conditions which they have been able to do in terms of the location. It's on a military compound outside of the capital city. It was um, in this remote, remote area. It takes a lot of energy to get there in, in really dangerous traffic. With all the military insignia still very, very much uh, um, uh, surrounding the, 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 and the proceeding. Two, the, um, the current regime wants to whitewash its own history. And they realize that they can do this through the Khmer Rouge Tribunal because then they will be, and, and they are now known as the triers of the Khmer Rouge. Mm -hmm. and, in, and, and being known, it automatically washes their own history. Right. Right. So they, they get the best of both worlds. They get to be known as the trials of the Khmer Rouge and in the process whitewash their own history. So you can imagine now how it will be, how this trial and this part of Cambodian history will be written in the history book around the globe in Canada, for example. Yeah, sure. It yeah. will be a blurb. It will be no, lo no longer than one paragraph, maybe one long paragraph, right. but we'll say that this regime this government tried the four Khmer Rouge leaders. They will name the four leaders without the details. And of without course, the, the devil the is yeah. the devil is in the details. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so that's the frustration. That truth is first of all, there are many many truths, and I'm I'm, I'm very much a believer in the truth. But in terms of in the day to day living of of an experience, is which perspective are we? coming from right. and which story is being told and the government is only allowing because of of, of, of the mass crimes and the mass and, and the uh, and the magnitude of this and the the, uh, the situation there's limited resources limited time and there are only certain strands that are being allowed to be told not the sensitive political stance so we're of course what is being said in court is true I don't question it the way right, that right. but it's a strand that is allowed and not the other 99 right. strands right. which are not allowed. Yeah, it's been redacted. It's a form of censorship. Yeah. That's right. Um, I think, I mean, I have so many more questions for you and I'll look forward to doing another interview with you <laughs> the next time I'm in town. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about the intervention that you think is required to, to deal with the sense of mistrust and fear? Um, you know, you said unless there's an intervention on a, a, a larger scale, we probably as a, is, is that intervention education. Education is, is foundational. Yeah. It's the 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 fundamental first step. And but um, and and when we think of education, though, we think it from our Western perspective yes. in this sense. For example, I'm putting a lot of energy now into language. Oh, okay. Into the Khmer language. Our Khmer language now is in crisis. It's not a functional language. It's, 
it's probably stuck in the Middle Ages. Hmm. So when we talk about quality education, we, we think, oh, let's build schools. And we have schools, and we have teachers, and we have books. We don't look at the quality of the books. It's in English. And if it's translated into Khmer, it's the quality of translation right. Right. understandable. Right. Right. And I'm saying that we need to even go a few steps back. The language is not understandable right now. Our language, we don't have, for example, punctuation. Punctuation is not an English thing. It's a universal thing. There are, there are traffic signs, the language mm -hmm, traffic mm -hmm. signs to tell us how to, to, um, to, and the tools to help us parse ideas. So back to the larger issue of education. Yes, education is fundamental. And in Cambodia, language, the Cambodian language is really fundamental. Because unless we're waiting for every Cambodian to know English so that they can access the, and the, and the educational materials in English, then we need to focus on developing the Khmer language up to par so that it's a functional language. So um, the larger, my larger point is that we, we think that education is neutral, that it's not a contested ground, but it is. Here, who controls the education via television, via radio? The, the Ministry of Education, what is the quality? How, are the, how much are the teachers being paid? It's all a political issue, mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. politicized here. Right. The teachers here are paid $60 a month. Again, how can you live on $60 a month yeah. anywhere in the world in 2013? You cannot. It's not a living wage. So education is the, the fundamental first principle toward the road of healing and reconciliation. And in that, in, 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 in education, language. Language is the vehicle not only for formal education, not only for scholastics education, but it's for the education of life. It's, it's, it's the vehicle for relationships. Frame, framework, a foundation for so many other things, right? It's, it's yeah. you know, we, yeah. either we are have high language or low language. Yep. For example, you know, in terms of the words that we use, the, the oral language that we use, is it high language that, and that feeds into the reconciliation process, or is it low language right. that divides, that, that creates the other and, and makes the, the other more pronounced? And right now, we're, we're speaking, we're using ghetto language across the board. The whole country is using ghetto language. I have uh, one last question for you. I remember reading a report, one of the first things I read about the history of Cambodia some 12 or 13 years ago in the year 2000 or 1999, and, and I think it was an Amnesty International report, and it, it mentioned in the whole of uh, you know the country left after the Khmer Rouge regime, there was maybe 11 judges left in the country. Um, I don't know if you know that stat or not. Yeah, but, I've but heard less. Probably less. <laughs> yeah. I've heard six, but I mean, just recently I the read point a, is a, made. Yeah, and I read a crazy report about how many students were left and the mm. numbers were minimal, how many doctors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you talk about development? How do you talk about, I mean, you, you talk about a language problem. You talk about development mm. problems. You talk about capacity problems or empowerment and so on. When you've got a, a, a culture that... 65% of its culture was born after 1980. Yeah. And, and this is the thing that infuriates me when I speak to people at home, folks at home, Canadians, Americans, Europeans, and so on, about some of the issues that I deal with in development mm. that you're dealing with it from a human rights perspective. I don't know, I just, how, how do you get people to understand that? And, yeah. and it's a, it's kind of a rhetorical question, and yeah. maybe we should just end there because it's opening <laughs> up a whole other can of worms. But, but 
there's you know there's no other life like it is the advertisement for uh, the Canadian military mm. and if I could take that there's no other country like mm. the history you know that has the history of Cambodia and I know on a trite level you can say that about any country mm -hmm. it's a degree I think it's, I think it's a and the magnitude com complicated and nuanced I mean nuance doesn't even begin to unpack the complexity in, in one sense but, but the degree, the depth of the suffering, the magnitude of the problems, the sea of problems, the in, inundation of, of these major problems that are coming at us at once, it's the degree that we have to deal and with. And it's all at once, you're right. And it's all at once. Yeah, yeah. So what, uh, what can I tell my students about <laughs> human rights? What can I tell them that's, that's uh, uh, what's a reason to get into this kind of work? as we uh, wrap up our interview? Well, I think human rights, a term, has been overused, and I think we need to unpack it by saying that almost we almost need to, uh, to take out the word human because it's really unnecessary. We're talking about rights, basic, innate, God-given rights that are us and that are ours to begin to have from birth. And when a society deprives us of what are ours, then we need to demand for them. And if, the, in, if that society is at that moment in time too weak to demand for it, then we need to assist them. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really all everyone's prerogative, not just my prerogative here in Cambodia, but wherever we find ourselves when a right that is has been violated, then I think we need to intervene. It's a prerogative, it's a duty, it's not an option. Mm. Um, it's a duty for everyone to intervene to, to redress the violation that they encounter wherever they find themselves in the world. Thank you for joining me today, Thierry Seng. That's T-H-E-A-R-Y-S-E-N-G.com. That's check right. out her website. Um, I believe she's working on a new book. You can check out and pick up her book, Daughter of the Killing Fields. I highly recommend it off of Amazon.com. I can't believe we just uh, spent 50 minutes together at the Foreign <laughs> Correspondents Club here in Phnom Penh, but thanks so much for joining us. Today. Really a pleasure, David. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.